You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through these podcasts, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in. And, and uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. So um, welcome to another episode of uh, Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today, I'm joined by um, Fundu Nkuru, who's the Chief Operating Officer for NetBank. So it's really great to chat to you. So it, it's so funny, but um, when I do research on people, you find out so many interesting things. And um, something that maybe connects us is I did a Q&A with your uncle last week at one of our conferences. You're kidding me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. <laughs> Wiseman. Yeah. So I, smiled, I, yeah. so I spent a lot of time with him on the Q&A. It was meant to be for 15 minutes and it ended up being over half an hour. He, mm -hmm. But he's so knowledgeable. It was a real privilege to speak to him. Um, so, and, and now, I, now I speak to you, his nephew. So it's, this is, this you, must, is awesome. you, must, you must have enjoyed the interaction. I think I was very proud, actually. Uh, I felt honored to, to engage with him. Yeah. Um, I think he's really wise, and I think he sets a standard for South African corporate governance and leadership in South Africa. Yeah. So, and it's funny, wherever I go, I think he's got, he, he's a celebrated name that's, that's probably not celebrated enough, actually, to be fair but um, hugely respected. Yeah, uh, as, as, as you can imagine, we take uh, deep pride in the work he's done and his accomplishments. And in small ways, we try to follow in his footsteps, yes. He kind of ruined my intro for you a little bit, because when I read that, I was like, wow, everything falls into place now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, very kind of you, Ralph, yeah. It's like you don't have it. You don't have a choice. You've got, your standards are so high because you're obviously, you know, you've got a benchmark that's been set now that you've got to beat. So um, there's it's nothing sort of, like that to get one motivated in life. Yeah, it's so, so true. And and so in a way, I wanted to to ask you. You know, and you also spoke, and I, and I read some other podcasts you did with um, Lincoln Marley, and I know Lincoln from way back. From way back, so and I know you guys go back, and you're talking about where you grew up and yes. um, how it's now one of the, the you know the most violent places, and so it, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing for you either. No, 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 it doesn't. The those journeys are parallel. Yeah, very similar. Very similar. But mm. but I suppose I suppose it got me thinking. It got me thinking. So how do we help? How do we help more South Africans to, who also coming from disadvantaged communities, how do we help them? You know, 
obviously we need to right the wrongs of the past. What do you what do you see that we can do more society, government, business to 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 improve opportunities for young people? The number of things, the number of things that are possible here, Ralph, but it does come down, first of all, to providing role models. Okay, there's got to be a sense of aspiration uh, because you can see role models that you identify with, you can see how they break through in life, and that gives you the self-confidence to believe you can follow in their steps. Uh, we can do so many other things, but if it does not connect with self-belief, we tend to fall short or uh, we do not empower individuals enough to take life by the scruff of the neck and seek to do something about it. Then, of course, uh, there are all manner of uh, support measures government can provide, business can provide, immediate family can also come in to support. But essentially, if we keep that spark that the individual has it within himself or herself to mm. make a difference of their own lives and mm. to seek to lead a life of purpose and meaning, I think yeah. it starts there. It starts there. Everything else is a part of support system to help you break through. And, and oftentimes, of course, uh, people may trip up and falter. Uh, I don't worry too much about that. I tend to read into it muscle building because all too often you can run straight through in life and not be ready for other adversities precisely because you've had, uh, uh, you've had it smooth sailing. And so uh, is to build in the resilience that uh, even if you trip up, you can pull yourself by the bootstraps and pull through. I tend to think that in life, we think of it more as a spiral. If all that I ever do is to interact with um, those of my generation, I probably wouldn't make much of a difference. In mm -hmm. a sense, in a spiral, you get pulled up by those above and ahead of you. So mm -hmm. they add knowledge, wisdom, experience. You learn from them. Yeah. But in token, you also have a responsibility to pull those coming from behind mm. you and below mm. you. And mm. so you have a responsibility to reach out to them, to help them, to be a role model to, to them as well. And so that's the journey through life. And if yeah. you are able to operate at all those three tiers, you operate with your peers, they give you the challenge, they compete with you, and they toughen you up. The, the others who are more experienced, more accomplished, you learn from them and learn deeply and fast. The younger mm. ones behind you, you provide inspiration. You help them along that journey. That's how we manage our way through life as it were. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I agree with you. And it seems like it seems like it's a team effort. There's no individual success. A lot. Of, I think there, there seems to be this misconception that it's individuals that have become successful, but it's the teams of people and communities that get, you know, and, get around that person. And we're finding more and more that even the, value, the, pro, the very process of value creation is actually a collaborative process. It's a team effort. You make a distinct contribution in your own right because uh, you've got to also uh, pull your own weight in a team but actually we do not succeed in life by sitting in a little corner and uh, fending all by ourselves. We, we succeed in combinations with others, learning from others, making a contribution that shapes the greater whole. And uh, that seems to me to be the big lesson that's come through. And I think something else that comes through is, and you mentioned it, taking opportunities. And, and in a way, like, not. Pivoting, because I mean, I, I mean, I read that you, what your other uncle is, Charles, is a medical doctor, and, and that's sort of a direction that you wanted to go, but yeah. then UWC and you pivoted, and so it seems to be consistent. There's a lot of uh, people who are really successful, who yeah. they thought they mapped out their career, their life, and then an opportunity came, and they grabbed that opportunity. Yep. Yeah. So, 
it's quite scary for a young person because they want to plan out their life and they don't know what's coming. And so, but but so how did you make those distinctions in terms of when you pivot and and why you're doing it? What were the sort of the the underlying thought process or or process for pivoting for you personally? It, it's interesting that you're putting it that way because um, I grew up um, being one of those who thought that I had mapped out my life. I knew what uh, discipline I would go into. I had a role model in the family, my own uncle being a medical doctor, and I thought uh, I would go into that stream. Um, at school, I had uh, dexterity enough to enjoy various subjects. I can't think of a subject that I didn't really enjoy. So they it was for me, go for it. Uh, and I did um, a pre-med program at um, Fortier. And after going through that, I said, okay, the easiest route is to complete a science degree, is to complete a science degree. And in the second year of that program, when there were um, disturbances uh, on, on campus, and uh, we had to abandon the campus as it were. So uh, I kind of think of it now as having left uh, uh, those ambitions there. And uh, again, all of that linked to political activism. Uh, at that point in my life, the only institution that was open to welcome us was UWC in Cape Town, under the helm of Jake Scarville, whom we grew to know and became friends with, even though he was our professor. And, and, and so you talk of a pivot, there it was. And um, I, I suppose um, years of activism didn't quite uh, correlate very well with the disciplines of um, a science discipline. Uh, running uh, um, uh, experiments in a laboratory all day long, I can remember those chemistry titration experiments. And I kind of look back and say, but no, man, <laughs> there's a lot that's happening. This is putting me at risk. There are other options in life. And uh, I took a different course of direction, which then led me uh, very early on into the work streams leading up to 94, we're busy writing uh, economic policy. That was... Um, uh, when I think of that time, a breakthrough period for me, but in a sense, still relatively young to think that you can be shaping policy choices for a country. I mean, who the hell are you? Where are you coming from? But uh, we throw ourselves in the deep end. And again, against uh, the guidance of uh, disciplined and accomplished uh, professors, professionals, and uh, and uh, we landed their apron strings. And then 94 came, and then the big issue was, uh, okay, Mfundo, uh, you part of uh, writing these policy propositions, got to execute and implement, and the country is governed in Pretoria. Now, I was quite happy uh, in the Cape at that time, and uh, at a small uh, teaching program, uh, in this Center for Southern African Studies at DWC. At the end of that year, I relocated to join the DTI. At that time, it was led by Trevor Manuel as the new minister in 94 to implement those programs. And my area of um, activity was uh, in trade relations, reopening, uh, opening new relations with the world and certainly with the continent of Africa where South Africa uh, had been excluded. So we did trade negotiations, we established ourselves in the Southern African Development Community, we looked at the customs union arrangement we have with our immediate neighbors that allows for the free flow of, of goods and then also the revenue transfer arrangements that underpin that. We then negotiated the trade agreement with the European Union. That was a real test of metal. Because at any given point in time, 
kind of look at the team across the table and say, okay, those, they have 100 years of collective experience in these negotiations uh, between and amongst themselves. They are sitting with deep uh, libraries behind them. And so it's not just uh, um, negotiating the minute uh, points of detail. It's also the ability to produce a text that shapes what will be a contractual document at the end of the day. And so mm -hmm. we learned those things on the hub and uh, the, on the back of the success of that, thrown into negotiations of uh, the WTO uh, agreements. Uh, the agreement establishing the WTO was already in place, but there were continuing agreements now going beyond uh, the elimination of tariff barriers to look at non-tariff barriers, to look at standards, uh, both uh, sanitary and phytosanitary standards that underpin trade. Uh, we were looking now at uh, non-trade measures in the area of competition, in the area of investment. And so very quickly, we had to have a full understanding of the tapestry of uh, an economic program and how uh, certain agreements and frameworks could facilitate growth of your economy or could be an obstacle to it. And so we had to be alive to that. And for me, what was salutary about that phase is that you had a world that had uh, warmly welcomed South Africa. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, you're riding uh, on, on the crest of this wave. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly, you get to appreciate that there are also interests that countries have and interests that they hold dear and mm. interests that they would protect uh, fiercely. Mm. And so you had to unlearn very quickly that uh, you are uh, this uh, new arrival that everybody feels warm and fuzzy about and come <laughs> to the real world understanding that there are material issues at stake here. You've got to understand that you have your own interest to advance and protect at the mm. same time you, in most cases, most likely to protect and advance those in a mm -hmm. context of protecting and advancing the interests of others. Okay? Yeah. So uh, European Union said, yeah, you want access to our markets? Sure, we'll open them. Can you then also think of opening your markets to us? He said, no, 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 we can't do that. Too fragile. Uh, we're coming in against them. Um, years of uh, underinvestment, we have high unemployment levels, and people say, okay, we understand that, but just get it. You're not going to come and disrupt our wine production. So, oh, what is that now? Surely we have a capability in wine production. Surely <laughs> if we're talking about market opening, we should be selling our produce. They say, uh -uh. Now, there were four interesting categories that came to the fore. Uh, as we all know, uh, Champagne had long been established that it could only come from France, and mm. uh, we have sparkling wine, everybody understood that. Mm. And then the Italians uh, said, ah, Grappa is only Italian, you can't <laughs> have it in South Africa. The Greeks said, Uzo, you can't. Uh, the, the Portuguese said, Port is a product of, of, of Porto and can come from anywhere else. And so very quickly we learned, okay, this is now the lay of the land and, uh, and sherry could only come from Spain. And then we sat there and said, hmm, but what does that mean for our industry then? And ultimately that negotiation uh, concluded with a 10 year agreement of using South African appellations. So we call it South African port. We call it uh, South African grab in order to distinguish it in the market from others. But we said we'll compete on the strength of the quality of those products. So those were solitary lessons. They were character developing and career shaping. For sure. And, and, and I think one of the things I was going to ask you is that what do you think the skills that you acquired or you tapped into to manage that process? Well, uh, a combination of uh, skill sets. First of all, you needed to understand 
the technical side of the subject matter, the content you're talking about, yeah. uh, others will see through you very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so we needed to, to do that, step up to the mark quickly. Uh, in very many ways, we were doing also primary research ourselves, and where necessary, you go and reach out to sectors of expertise in the market because you're actually negotiating for these interests and therefore you need to understand where people are at, how they think and where they're headed. Then second, you needed to have um, negotiating skills. Some think of those as soft skills, but they're actually soft and hard at the same time because they straddle the world of both content as well as effectiveness. So yeah. we, we had to learn that. Then we had to understand what it means to be mandated. Okay? Because the mm -hmm. mandate that you seek and that you would gain from government has to be firm enough so that you have an assurance that you're on the right track. Uh, nobody wanted uh, to sell a new democracy down the tubes. So you needed mm -hmm. to get that firmly in place. But yeah. you also needed sufficient room so there had to be a measure of confidence in the negotiating team so that you can move uh, in a somewhat defined parameters so that you can craft an agreement. Then third element needed an appreciation that there are real sectoral interests at home, be they business, be they labor, uh, be they the unemployed. So you've got to come back and uh, interact with them before any deal is yeah. confirmed. There's no point in coming after the fact. So you interact with them and they would press hard on their interests and issues. And uh, yet you've had to be smart enough to recognize which were the key issues to fight hard on, which were the issues that you can compromise in order to craft a deal and why would you come back and sell that as a positive outcome? Sure. So, we, needed, so we, we learned to balance all of these things. Did, did not always get it right. I mean, it would get hard pushback because uh, the issue about sectoral interest is that they're very focused on their point of interest in the overall equation. And so uh, you had to reckon with all of those, take all of those into account. But overall, I think South Africa did uh, very well. We mm. re-entered the world on terms that were not generally adverse to us. I, I mm. know there are different schools of thought on the subject. Others said opened up uh, the economy too quickly and we the industry was decimated as a result. My own take on it is that uh, South Africa is largely an open economy integrated into the world system. Of course, integrated um, in measures that are also negative, if you mm -hmm. think of it as a supplier of primary products. Largely, you want to play in that system uh, as a trader in uh, value-added goods and services, because yeah. that's where the value lies. But not only are we an open uh, trading nation in that sense, we also have um, an, an open financial system. Yeah. And a currency that is probably a proxy for other emerging market currencies. It is a, a, a liquid and traded currency, albeit uh, not uh, as hard a currency as some of the advanced economies. And, and therefore, our own growth as a nation tends to correlate very highly with the growth of the world economy. So we have an interest, perhaps not all that obvious, but an mm -hmm. inherent interest that the overall global environment must be one of growth, because in that environment, we have better prospects of performing as a country. And so we saw it that way. Mm -hmm. Here, South Africa had and continues to have very distinct disadvantages in the labor market in mm -hmm. the sense that uh, the decades 
of um, of apartheid rule meant that we were underinvested in our own people, mm. and therefore the huge mismatch between the skills that the economy requires and what the system changes has always been our soft underbelly. Mm. I think that is uh, it's not generated by trade agreements. It does not live only in that realm. It is. Um, a function of who we are and where we are continues mm. to be a source of disadvantage to this day. Mm. Now, in the context of the pandemic, of course, we worry about um, the impact on employment loss that will come mm. through. And so it will uh, serve to uh, compound a challenge that we've already had. But it's mm. not only just the pandemic. It's also a world of um, digital transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this digital transformation is largely driven by forces exogenous to us. These mm-hmm. are the competitive forces that drive innovation. Mm-hmm. And so these new technologies are emerging in a world that seeks to drive competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And we have no choice but to respond mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. And in that response, we do run the risk that we can uh, unintentionally exacerbate the inequality in our own uh, domestic economy. Mm. We can exacerbate uh, the skills gap. And so Mm. we've got to enter that challenge conscious of our own shape, conscious of our own uh, weaknesses, and Mm. seek to address those weaknesses at the same time as we participate in what I'd like to call the economy of the 21st century. And so against that backdrop, then uh, considerations of um, further opening up of the spectrum matter, uh, driving down a cost of data matters, Mm. making sure that uh, we can bring as many as possible into the mainstream of uh, modern communication systems it's yeah. part of integration of society. Mm. It is also part of bringing uh, uh, people into the financial services sector. So when mm. we talk of financial inclusion, we look at these uh, as opportunities. In the mm. context of the challenges that we face here and now, mm. um, we can see that um, even with the state desire to provide support to the vulnerable through SASA grant payments, through delivery of services to pensioners, Mm -hmm. that the old method is a cake for the period that we live in. The indignity that goes with the elderly standing in long queues in harsh um, elements of the environment surely must compel us to look at different ways of doing this. Mm. We can then harness the uh, capabilities of a digital economy to continue Mm. to render those services at the Mm. convenience of the elderly. Mm. Now we all know that um, the measure of civility of a society is how it treats the elderly and, and the young. Mm. And therefore, when you look at the elderly after decades of working lives and still having to go through hardships of this kind, your heart kind of bleeds because mm. you know that this service can be offered much more differently, much mm. more conveniently, at a mm. fraction perhaps of the cost. Mm. And so they, there's opportunity opportunity there to do more and do things differently. Yeah. We've, we've, we've been forced now to think of uh, working and learning remotely by um, the sheer weight of, um, of the regulations that, that force a physical distancing. Yeah. If you think, of, think about it, in South Africa, uh, with um, long pedigree of um, long distance education as in UNISA. As a country, we didn't have deliberately, consciously 
a, a police in the position of digital university education, for instance. Mm. Now it is on the cards, it's on the table. Every institution must have a capability to offer mm. some form of distance learning at the end. And then mm. you ask yourself such questions about what then is the cost of delivery of university education in today's terms, if we're to do it that way. It must be a fraction of the cost of the old model. And therefore, does this now not turn the conversation on its head when we're talking of uh, fees must fall campaign and all of that? It seems to me that uh, the paradigm was the mm. old one when there was a possibility of a new paradigm that could help us tackle those challenges differently. We yeah. now, perhaps rudely, we have been shown that this is possible, it can be done. And when you think about it, it can be done at also not just the tertiary education level, but also at the various uh, levels, and mm. perhaps better linkages between the privileged schools and the underprivileged schools. So how mm. do we share resources here? How mm. do we use digital capability for teachers in the good schools to also have access and and be a source of reference, if not direct teaching, into the under-resourced schools. It yeah. seems to me that we've got to think of a different level of thinking to solve societal problems than mm. the thinking that generated the problem in the first place. Mm. I mean, if I if I think about the word activist, yeah, and what you were initially you know, aligned to, an activist for me is someone who's challenging the status quo has to be and so if i look at what you've what you've done at the dti at sars at nedbank it's and and your digital transformation within nedbank it's challenging the status quo and so <laughs> i i see your activism as changing from political to a social one indirectly through business but, but a, a social one through business that I, I like the the formulation that's the way i think of it i can see it i can see it it's like very clear to me that that's how you see your role but then i i, th I think so then i look at the situation i say okay so um there's this gifted person who's making change within an organization and i look at the role that you play as a coo and i see it as a significant one probably one of the most significant modern roles in business now and if i look at, and if i compare it to um, groundbreaking organizations like Apple. I look at Tim Cook, who was also in that role, and it seems to me it used to be the CFO to CEO or the chief marketing officer to CEO. Yeah. This new trend moving, but then I'm torn, and I'm thinking, is 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 that the future of businesses from an operational to to transition them to be the you know, the agility manager, the agility executive, to be agile for the circumstances because things are so changing that the operational person has to manage that change. But then I think, or is there a new political activism that you're seeking? <laughs> <laughs> Ralph, Ralph, uh, interesting question. Because, because there's some broken ideas. There's yeah. some broken ways of doing things and you mentioned education but it's not just education it's, no, it's, it's, it's we are falling back on what we know and we're not generating ideas from the youth and and where you were in terms of where things should be yeah yeah um i kind of think of it as um, one of the least defined of the sweet roads era <laughs> and that's partly the reason i enjoy it um, yeah. Chief executive, we know they're responsible for the entire enterprise wall to wall. Yeah. Uh, CFO runs uh, the uh, finance and through finance, the execution of strategy, actually. The heart yeah. of that. CIOs have uh, been responsible for systems development and information management and uh, the, the whole uh, technology landscape. The risk officers manage risk. And those are sweet, sweet roles that are well known. Um, 
The COO one tends to also look at operations. So we've got to have an understanding of the operations of the enterprise, how they're stitched together, how it all hangs together, the interdependencies and impacts, and the levers to pull in order to get what outcomes. But they also perhaps also do take the flavor of the incumbent. And so what it is that you bring into the role, what mm. you want out of the discipline, and perhaps also how you think about the way ahead, where you think you're headed, how does that uh, uh, roadmap look like? Mm. But there are also new roles that are coming into it now. Mm. It does seem to me that uh, looking ahead, executive teams invariably will have chief data officials, chief digital of officials, because yeah. that is where the modern enterprise is really shaped. I, I think of that uh, uh, digital capability and uh, technology uh, as more than just uh, a, a channel or an enabler of business. Increasingly, mm. it is integrated into your delivery engine. Without yeah. that technology capability, you can't deliver the services that uh, you so design. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we see that now in the times we live in, there's a strong acceleration of that direction of travel. And so there will be uh, new roles that will emerge in the shape and composition of top teams, no doubt in my own mind, mm -hmm. if not roles most definitely different skill sets than, than we, have, we have seen historically. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, if I'm an inst instigator of that, mm -hmm. that's still the activist in me mm -hmm. uh, at a corporate level. Mm -hmm. But corporates have got to also find relevance in society. They've got to find a purpose beyond just uh, random sense. Yeah. And therefore, if we are value creators in the way we run our businesses, mm. got to have it within us to be value creators in society. That, mm. that uh, the value that we create must translate into a better society that's moving forward. It seems mm. to me that one of the inherent advantages that businesses have is high quality of leadership teams. Yeah. That yeah. tends to be one of the areas of concentration of high quality of skills mm. that yeah. the society has. But it's yeah. not just skills. Mm. These are men and women who are doers. Mm. Yeah. They often start with nothing, a piece mm. of paper, sometimes with minimal capital, generate mm. new ideas, problem solving, put a uh, uh, shoulder to the wheel mm. and then the resilience to stay through cycles in order to deliver that value. Mm. I do think that society as a whole has, has to also leverage that capability in the interest of advancement, of advancement of society itself. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of thoughts there. I mean, just quickly, that operations, I look at operations in a business as the execution part. Yeah. So, so then, then I, 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 the old adage of you know um, execution beats strategy for breakfast. It, it's it's like um, I, I think that's the modern way. It's it's about executing and delivering value to the customer. I mean, yeah. it really has to be that way. But I mean, in terms of leadership, I couldn't have I couldn't agree with you more. I'm what I'm seeing is that with capable leadership, most organisations can thrive in whatever challenging environments that they find themselves with the right leader who brings the team together and and creates a sense of belonging. And I think you you said as much. And so th th then I get thinking that then how do we create more leaders? How do we actively create more leaders? Because that's a skill in itself. It's not. Yes, it, 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 is, it, it, it is a skill and not an easy one. It's a skill. Um, it starts with um, agency. Okay? We, mm. We've got to be conscious, we've got to be deliberate about it. We've mm. got to make a very clear call that we will build new leaders. 
It can't just mm -hmm. happen at the periphery of things that we do day to day. Mm. It can't happen in and of itself. It's not a training development program that you send people to. Mm. So we must be authentic in that sense, in our own, be comfortable with our own identities. Who are we? And therefore, this is the contribution that I seek to make. Mm. Then we also have to think of the attributes that define um, winning leaders. Mm. Now, you would expect of a leader that the leader would bring um, a sense of uh, vision mm. that uh, they are responsible for managing the delivery of the day-to-day, -day, but they mm. are driven by a vision of a future that they would want to take us to, mm -hmm. okay? And they are able to spell that vision in very succinct and understandable terms so that the mm. rest of the team gets mm. alignment behind it. Mm. But beyond a vision, you can all have a vision. Mm. The leader has to uh, own the purpose of the enterprise. So mm. what is this enterprise for? Mm. Otherwise, we call it a mission. But the very purpose, and it seems to me that that purpose transcends the enterprise mm. itself. Mm. Is a purpose of the enterprise in society as a whole. Mm. This is who we are. We may mm. well be a bank, but mm. we are a bank that seeks to promote sustainable growth. The mm. underpinnings of that sustainable growth is that mm. we've got to think differently about the carbon intensity of our economy. Mm. We've got to champion a, a, a green economy as a source of opportunity and mm. as an acceptable way of life. Mm. And therefore, we've got to develop and provide solutions mm. that respond to that. And mm. so there are business imperatives about it, but they stretch mm. us beyond, beyond mm. just business. We then think of the planetary limits of the world that we live in and mm. how do we become a good citizen in that mm. environment. So leaders have to bring that. Leaders mm. have to exude um, elements of, uh, of trust, mm. okay? They are stewards of, um, of uh, businesses. The clients place trust on them. Suppliers place trust on them. Mm. Uh, consumers and customers place trust on them. And mm. therefore, they must live up to that expectation. Mm. Uh, leaders must also, particularly in tough times like this, show empathy, mm. show understanding, recognize mm. that we all now, uh, in a sense, navigating a relative uh, unknown position. Okay, mm. we know of uh, pandemics in the past, we know of uh, um, diseases that have had adverse impact, mm -hmm. but we do not know enough about what we're dealing with now. Yeah. Uh, as people say, this is a three-dimensional crisis at best. Is mm -hmm. the health dimension. It morphs very quickly into an economic one when you mm -hmm. look at the impact on uh, performance of business, uh, businesses closing down, people losing jobs, production mm. levels falling down, recessionary economic environment all around. Mm. Then it becomes a social one. Mm. Okay? Then the gap between uh, the wealthy and the poor uh, mm. is exacerbated. Those who are vulnerable lose sources of income, lose employment, that adds to strain at the family level. And those who can cope, uh, you can see that delta opening up between those uh, elements of society. And therefore, leaders need to have empathy to act in a manner that does not reinforce pro-cyclicality. Mm. We, we know that this is a very severe and negative cycle. So what are the things that we can do to ameliorate 
those negative effects. Yeah. And so you get to restructure things, rearrange relationships with clients. But you've got mm. to do that in an environment that your own business does not go under. Mm. Okay? So you've got to be able to leave to fight another day. And therefore, mm. you've got to do this in a manner that does protect your own enterprise, but mm. actually extends the reach of support that you can provide to all of society. And then you need that um, uh, uh, collaboration, um, others call it social contract, also with government, because the, you've got to leverage all of society in order to be able to make that kind of difference. And so that is what I would see as attributes of leadership that are emerging strongly at this point in time, yeah. which means that uh, we've got to lead our businesses well yeah. and be known for and have it and evidence success in doing so. Yeah. But we must respond to society's expectation that we are here for more than just our immediate businesses. Yeah. I mean, I get the impression that businesses to a large degree have really come to the party with COVID. That's the sense I get. Um, but but I do feel like I'm a little bit concerned that the, the social compact that we have at the moment is not working the way it should. And I suppose in a way I was intrigued to get your sense because I know that you've worked within government. I know a lot of people that work within government, there's some great people, and some of them are equally possibly frustrated. And I, and I sometimes want to ask myself, how can we help? I mean, is it something we can help? Is it something that, you know, what, what, what has business done its bit? It's, it's just that we, we need to take on more and, and have less maybe reliance on government to do even more than we're doing because it's, the social compact is that we need to help society. This that's not going to go away. But also at the same time, some of the things that are needed are needing some interventions from government or not. Are you feeling like not, or we need to do more communicating, less communicating, we less reliance? We do need to do more. We do need to do more all around, all of us. Such is the nature of the challenge that none of us can readily claim to have done enough. But what is more? I think that's the question you're asking. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I look at South Africa, my own sense of South Africa compared to other nations. Other nations I've interacted with, I've seen, uh, people generally come through the same schooling system. Some may go private sector, others public sector the relationships are still um, tight and strong in the generally mutual respect across the fences. And therefore the ability to reach out is um, relatively easy. And you can also see career migrations, people in business go into government, government come back into business and they live across that world with relative ease. In our own case, because of our own history, I look at the leadership uh, core in the country across the board, we've tended to have grown up in different schools. Mm -hmm. Different, we come from different walks of life. Mm -hmm. Those relationships aren't always natural. Mm -hmm. Therefore, people still think of business and think of government, and you do not think of this as domain you can play in, mm -hmm. in and out as you choose to. Mm -hmm. And so we probably have um, a deficit in our starting point, mm. which is all the more reason that we've got to keep working at it and work harder at it than, than others. Mm. Uh, second, we talk of a trust deficit. Mm. It, it is there and I've played on both sides of that divide. I've first-hand experience of it. Mm. In very many ways, um, uh, it, it reflects um, entrapment, I do not know, perhaps with ideological constructs that we operate within uh, mm. and an inability to loosen and open up and uh, accommodate and engage one another, mm. uh, which we should do. And uh, I do think that um, an ideology is a worldview. Mm. 
that worldview gets tested in reality, in practice, what it is that you're able to deliver or not. And mm. then the experienced life must also be able to influence and change ideological constructs. And so mm. we can't be hard and fast about these things to death. We must mm. allow room uh, for learning from evidence that experience brings. Mm. And Thirdly, yeah. Thirdly, we must be uh, willing to accept one another's bona fides up front. Yeah. Sometimes we ask, okay, who is this? Who are they coming from? Yeah. And we sit back and say, why is that the most important question in the room? Yeah. Why mm. is it not about the content that's being raised? And therefore, mm. all too often, uh, we put uh, unnecessary um, doubt about intentions, motives of mm. uh, contributors. Mm. I will not say that uh, it's always not justified, but as a society, we can be more relaxed. Uh, we, we're a society that is a little too tense for my liking. We can be more relaxed. You meet mm. somebody, you engage with them, you take them uh, um, on the basis of how they present themselves. Yeah. And there's no reason that uh, you should be swayed to distrust as mm. the first do you, do you, do you think, Do you think that's just racial biases that we're sitting with from years of like apartheid and that sort of stuff? Do you think that's what's underpinning this sort of lack of trust? Well, um, those uh, with deep um, psychological analytical skills do point to issues of uh, bias as one that stay with us much longer uh, mm. as, as a people than uh, we care to admit. They mm. would point that um, they also uh, phenomenon that's called unconscious bias. Mm. So not bias because you deliberately seek uh, um, to be biased relative to another, but you're mm. unconscious about your own affinities, you're mm. unconscious about your own inclination, what yeah. it is that you've experienced, what appeals to you. And so leaders, all the more reason that they've got to be a lot mm. more aware of themselves and mm. a lot aware of their almost innate inclination mm. and work against that, in the interest of inclusivity. Mm. Okay. I mean, so we talk about inclusivity, but uh, we probably can introspect on how inclusive really we are as a society. And that is yeah. why I see pockets of talent, expertise, even power, still boxing for sectional interest rather than for the collective whole. It's a challenge, right? Uh, look, I, I see the big opportunity is how do we get the stakeholders together more often? Because like you mentioned, everybody's got different backgrounds and, and education and viewpoints. And so actually the opportunities, if we bring all those people together, we're going to come up with some creative solutions that no one's ever thought of. And it's going to be really innovative. I mean, that just leads on to, you know, a lot of what's happening with digital transformation. It's about that. It's about bringing in all stakeholders to find solutions that that's, do things in an innovative way. And you would, you would think that source of creativity is exactly those different backgrounds, those different viewpoints. There's yeah. nothing as a state like uh, engaging with like-minded people only. Yeah, you've, I mean, got, you've, I, got, you've got to be reaching out there, different disciplines, different thought processes and challenges. That's how we grow. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, that just makes sense, right? That, that it's, not, it's not about saying that I'm from a different background. It's like saying, okay, maybe you could add a different dimension to this conversation. So how do we to, to make that richer for yeah. all parties? So, I mean, I'm intrigued as well because, not, not just intrigued, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying this conversation. But, but I suppose one of the things that we wanted to talk around was um, how do we help other businesses you have gone through different transformation, digital transformations in other organizations, and you've done it with NetBank as well. And so I really don't want to miss the big opportunity of speaking to you. I mean, I, I've loved this, this conversation more than you can imagine. But at the same time, what I also want is to give some, some real benefits to the people who are listening in terms of 
What do you see as the pillars or the, or the principles for successful digital transformation within businesses? Okay. Uh, so, this is a serious you, you, you want now to be open about business in general or banking specifically? No, I think I think there's only a couple of banks, so it doesn't really apply so much to banks. And in a way, it's more it's more. And I think your experience working with your different organisations is yeah. it's important. To, and that's why I said more principles than actually what necessarily you cool. did in the bank. I I, I get you. For, for, for first of all, I I understand where we are and 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 what's going on. I did say right up front that the drivers of the digital revolution we're living through, generally um, motive forces of innovation and competitiveness, uh, some of these coming from outside of our environment. Actually, if you think of our own country, we've always had um, a, a strong base of innovation, new mm -hmm. ideas that we've generated. Uh, sometimes out of um, adversity because we have no choice as a society, but there's a rich history there of uh, a, a base of uh, innovation and we have evidence to, to show for that. So that is a starting point. Mm -hmm. Second, a business would have an existing line of business, okay? Yeah. Uh, uh, right from your client interface on the front end of the business through a after-sales support service that you provide through a operational fulfillment. Now you're bringing all those interfaces into the back-end systems, settlements, payments, uh, transaction concluded. Whatever business line you're in, you have an yeah. existing business. You can digitize that business by bringing in technology uh, in, a, in a way that helps you to produce uh, solutions that respond to the requirements and demands of the client. Surely the sustainable path over the long term must be the responsiveness to uh, exceed the client's expectation and to exceed the experience that they enjoy relative to other services that they procure in the market. I think that's an important point, right? I mean, I, it, I, go ahead. I, get, I get the impression that people have, have all dealt with Netflix or many people have. And yes. so a lot of people are seeing that as like the mark, like that's, I want that experience across everything I do now. Everything I do now. And so that's got to be the benchmark. So every other service provider is compelled to respond to that. So no longer is it adequate to say that I'm doing better than my competitor here. Are you doing it better than another service provider in another sector of the market? But that is an experience that the client enjoys. Yeah. And so the client would want a similar experience as ease of doing business, convenience, uh, whatever is the underpin. Yeah. Then, then there's a second element that comes with this process, that the line of business, the traditional line of business, is itself changing. Mm. Okay? So, your own experience of purchasing a pizza would have been to go to a pizza store. You order, you wait in the line, 20 minutes mm. later, the pizza is ready, you take your box, go home. Mm. But now, in a world, it was already coming, it's accelerated now because of uh, COVID conditions. Now you place an order at home. Okay? You expect that uh, the pizza will be delivered. Half an hour it passed, mm. uh, payment settled, but that is what you expect. Mm. Now, the provider of uh, the product mm. not only has to bake now the, the pizza, they've mm. got to have a solution for transporting mm. that pizza to your doorstep. Yeah. They may not be controlling that piece of the value chain, 
And so they enlist the services of um, a scooter company. Scooter company comes through, they deliver. Now, your point of interest is that I had a demand for this and uh, I placed the order for this, I paid for it, I expect it to be delivered. That is your level of expectation. And whoever fulfills that responds to your requirement. Mm. So what, the, what does this now do? It changes the traditional line of business. That, that traditional line has to incorporate these new components because mm. they're responding to changing lifestyle. Mm. They're responding to changing consumer behavior. Mm. We now all have to contend now with the fact that, okay, you're, you're digitizing your traditional line of business, but actually, mm. you're participating also in this new one. Mm. The traditional business is the source of your current value. Mm. That is the most profitable side of the equation for today. Mm. But in as much as you're investing in it, you can't lose sight of the mm. new opportunities that are emerging that you also have to invest in. Otherwise, mm. there's an inherent risk that new players will come in Mm. offer something that you used to offer differently mm. and run with the market. Okay. I mean, when you're speaking now, I'm thinking to myself, like you're talking about the pizza place and the delivery, like that's collaboration in its most... That's collaboration. And, and so you not just be collaborating internally, but you need to be reaching out because otherwise you're going to be struggling. You're going to have good relationships. This is, this, this is exactly the point, Ralph that in the traditional uh, line of business, you almost control the entire value chain. Yeah. So you, you are running a pipeline business and you are responsible for managing it all wall to wall. Yeah. Here, parts of the value chain are not yours. Mm. And so you've got to go into partnership. You've got to go into collaboration. You've got to agree on uh, service levels, agreements, that you will all have to fulfill in order not to disappoint the client. Mm. Still, mm. the client is the end user of your product. Mm. And so, so now when you think about that value chain, you think of it beyond your own business. There are other mm. players that come into it, but it is that collaboration that helps mm. to generate new value, mm. which is where we started actually about this conversation, that yeah. we do not generate value all sitting by yourself, but increasingly, we find it in teams. Now, we've got to be smart enough to have a definition of the team that mm. also transcends the specific mm. enterprise. Mm. And this is what digital transformation brings. And once you talk about it in those terms, it is more than just technology. Yeah. This is a business model change that we're talking about. And mm. therefore, requires also cultural change within mm. own business. Mm. I would put it to you that um, the culture change is even more challenging than mm. the technology aspect. The technology mm. aspect is complex, mm. but the culture change is more challenging because now you're dealing with people. Mm. In order to change culture, then you've got to go back and say, what are the mindset shifts that should happen here? Mm. What are the mental models and mental maps that we're working with? Mm. How do I change those, help people to change those so that they can change their own behavior? Mm. It is in shifting behavior that we now generate new habits. Mm. And new habits are the drivers of a new culture. Okay. okay? And then now you're bringing the people dimension into the equation. And so we talk digital transformation, actually, we're talking of uh, technologies, processes, and people. Because your own people must feel this transformation that we're talking about to be able to service your clients in the manner that you desire. Wow. I know that you've got to go, and I'm taking up all your time. I'm getting messages saying that we, we've got to finish up. I just, I, I'm so grateful, and it was, you know, I'm honoured. I met your uncle now. I met you. I'm, I'm truly honoured. It was great to it's catch a pleasure, you. Man. It was it was more fun than work. But um, 
Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. So we can't wait to share it with everybody. So thank you so much, though. Lovely. Very profound conversation. I enjoyed that, too. Okay. Thanks. Bye.